Five Wednesdays in a row, and I'm hoping I can learn a bunch of your names in the next five weeks. When Ross asked me to do this, he told me that he was going to be starting the Psalms, and I prayed about what the Lord wanted me to say to you, what he thought his dearly beloved people needed to hear. And... uh, because every time I've done that, it's always turned out great. So, you know, why break a, a good streak? But he, I asked Ross what psalms he's teaching, because he's not teaching all of them. And, uh, and then I said, okay, Lord, are there any of the ones that he's not teaching, even though Ross took the yummiest ones? Um, <laughs> and very, very quickly, within, you know, a day of praying about it, the Lord gave me five psalms that Ross is not teaching, that we get to look at. So these are psalms that God sent a guy a thousand miles from where I live up in the upper left-hand corner to teach these specific psalms for you who are going to be here. So if you open your heart to that, every time we do that, God has something for us, doesn't he? So tonight we're looking at Psalm 16. You read part of it earlier. I, have, I am a punctuation Nazi, and I'm also a, a verb tense Nazi. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm too old to change. But there was a real verb tense issue in verse 11 that changes the meaning of the verb in the version that you read. So I'm not going to knock it. I'm not sure even what version it is, but, but I corrected it in this passage up here. So I'm going to read all the way through. Psalm 16 is not very long. It only has 11 verses. I'm just going to read it. And then we will go back and chew on the pieces and spit out the bones and see what God has to say to us. But let's pray. Lord, you know us better than we know ourselves. You know what we need to hear better than any human could tell us. So... I just yield myself to you, Lord. I pray for words more than my own. I pray that the Holy Spirit would uh, remind me of the things I've spent hours studying. And uh, we open our hearts to your word, what you have to say to us. It's always good. It always instructs. It corrects. It encourages. So do all those things, Lord, that you inspired David to write this. That you had in mind that the people in Santa Rosa uh, were going to hear these words tonight. So make it alive to us, we pray. Give us our portion from you tonight, we pray. Amen. Let me just read this through. I'm reading from the New King James, which, once again, this is just the Bible that I have that I'm studying, and uh, I'll read it all the way through. This is a psalm of David. It starts off saying a miktam of David. And if you don't know what a miktam is, you're not the only one. Nobody knows what a miktam is. If you looked it up in a Hebrew dictionary, it's like they, they just don't know. The closest guess is that it sounds a lot like a Hebrew word for golden nuggets. It is a psalm of David. Some people have conjectured that because of the term miktam, it's simply a collection of golden nuggets. It's a collection of memorable thoughts that David put down. As you know from the Psalms, they are collections of thoughts. And some are instructive, some are pure praise, some are whining. Um, That's why we love the Psalms, isn't it? It just fits just about every mood that we're in. And David was a whiner, but he was a man after God's heart, too. So that justifies all of us pointers. So 
So this is a miktam, this is a collection of memorable thoughts. Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. If you have an NIV, it probably says, I take refuge, and both are correct. It's a colorful Hebrew verb. Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. O my soul, you've said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good thing apart from you. As for the saints who are on the earth, they're the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor take up their names on my lips. No other gods for me, David says. O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. Underline the word portion and the word cup and the word lot if you have your Bibles. They're key words. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. That's just such beautiful poetry. I love that. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. Because you will not leave my soul in Sheol. Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me, correct verb tense, you will show me the path of life. And I always believe there should be a colon after that because I believe the next two statements are a description of what is a result of being on the path of life. You will show me the path of life in your presence as fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. As we go through the Psalms, as Ross goes through the Psalms, there are certain phrases that you're going to hear over and over and over, and it's always good to understand what is meant. Some of them are Hebrew idioms. Some of them are peculiar. David wasn't the only one writer of the Psalms. My favorite worship leader that wrote one of the Psalms was a guy named He-Man. Uh, you got to love He-Man, the worship leader, right, don't you? Because most people think worship leaders are just those wimpy musicians. But uh, actually, it's not pronounced He-Man. It's pronounced He-Man. Um, <laughs> next week, we'll look at Psalm 27. The week after that, Psalm 50, if you want to do your homework. The next week after that, we will look at Psalm 84, which is fabulous. They're all fabulous. And then Psalm 145, if Jesus hasn't come before then, which is fine with me. Preserve me, keep me safe, some of the translations say, Oh God, for in you I put my trust. A lot of things that David affirms, as I said, I don't know if any of you were here last time I taught, back around the time of the Thanksgiving and the wedding, we looked at uh, Psalm 37. And I started that study by saying, these are things that David didn't always know. He found them to be true the exact same way that you and I will find them to be true. You can hear what I say, and you can agree with me or not agree with me, but the best way that you can know some of the things that David knows is to find it out the same way he did. It's interesting how many times David asked God to protect him and how much time David spent running for his life. So when David talks about God being his refuge, as he does here in verse 1, or putting his trust in God, that's just not an idle statement. He discovered that he could count on God being his refuge. You know, some people look at some of the Psalms and think David was... Paranoid, but you know what? Sometimes par even paranoid people have people trying to kill them. I mean, sometimes they do. David, before he was king, had Saul trying to kill him, the most powerful man in the whole kingdom. Later, at the end of, towards the end of his life, his own son was trying to kill him. There was one point in David's life he had 20,000 soldiers 
hunting him down all over Israel. But he discovered something. Some of David's best songs were written during those times of running for his life. Because what it teaches you is it teaches you where your safe place is. Folks, I don't say many wise things. This is a wise thing. So listen to up, uh, because after I'm dead, it might be famous. <laughs> Never underestimate the value of desperation. If we respond properly in desperation and turn to the Lord, we learn stuff. We learn that all those promises that he made about protecting us, we learn that they're true. You, one of my favorite Bible teachers, John Corson, says that most Christians believe things that other people know. It's okay. It's okay to believe something, but tell you, believing something that somebody else knows is never as good as knowing it yourself. And sometimes God will allow us to be desperate, just like David, so God can prove himself. So we have that in our own experience of God's faithfulness. Some of you might be there right now. You might be in that place where you say, there's no way out, there's no way out. You know what? There's about 20 maybe psalms for you. Because David went through those kind of times, and then later he could say, Lord, you protect me because I've tried all of my own self-protective things and they don't work. Every place that David ran to hide, and he, he found some really good places to hide. And how many of you have gone to Israel? Because I've, I've taken five tours there. And you remember up at En Gedi when you hike all the way up through down in the Judean wilderness and you get way up at the top and there's that huge cave with the, with the little lake and the, all the ferns growing on the wall? David wrote some of his best songs there. In the next five weeks, we'll sing a couple of them. But he was that was a box canyon. He was trapped, and that was when 20,000 guys were hunting him down. Every place David tried to find as a safe place was always found out, and in his life he discovered God was the only safe place. And folks, that's worth knowing. I think, this is my own opinion from what I've seen happen in my life, whenever I have constructed what I think are safe places, Oh, this relationship, this person won't hurt me. Oh, this church, this is a good church. They won't hurt me, you know. Brace yourself, because churches are just filled with people, and people are people. And there's no perfect one, and if there was, you'd ruin it, because you're here. Because <laughs> you're not perfect either. Every time I have tried to construct something that I could create my own little safety zone, God has demolished it in love, to protect me so that I'm not putting my trust in anything but him. You know the whole deal with idols, why God made such a big deal about Israel worshiping idols? It wasn't jealousy in the human sense of jealousy. It wasn't, I can't believe you went out with her (laughs) because I've been so good to you. No, it's not that kind of a deal. God said, More than once, he said, that's not a real God. I'm the only real God, and when you get in trouble, this false God that you're crying out to, they can't help you. I'm the only one that can help you. So if you're bullheaded like me, and you you are so used to constructing little self-protective systems, I finally found a good man, or I finally found a good woman that won't hurt me, or I finally got the the job, the... Fill in the blank with something. God is the only safe place, folks. And that's worth knowing, even if he has to dismantle some of our self-protection to prove it to us. By the way, self-protection is exactly the opposite of faith. Hate to tell you. We can compare stories sometimes, and I'll tell you all the bad stuff that's happened to me in my life. One thing I do know at this point in my, in my elderly years is that there's only one safe place, there's only one totally 100% safe person, and he's mine. 
and I'm his. So, and that's what David found out. And so the ta- I take refuge in you, Lord. I put my trust in you, so you preserve me. The Hebrew verb means, the Hebrew verb is very colorful. It means to run into a tower because you know you will be safe there. And it's translated, put my trust, many times throughout all of the, uh, certainly all of David's psalms. So, verse 2, boy, I better get going here. Oh, my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord, and apart from you, I have no good thing. I'm going to whiz through some of these verses, but some of them we're going to just camp on for a while, especially the last verse, and that we could, we could do our whole study just on verse 11. But I love this statement, apart from you, I have no good thing. The Hebrew literally says, apart from you, I have no good. And it can be translated, I have no goodness. Some of the translations say that. It could mean I have no good thing. Both are true. And I want to talk about this for a while because the first thing that, in fact, if you do cross-references in your Bible, cross-reference James chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. James 1, 16 and 17. Because James says almost the same thing, only he just looks at the other side of the coin. He says, every good and perfect gift comes from one place. It comes from your heavenly Father who doesn't change, like shifting shadows change. And the, but the interesting thing, and the thing I wanted to talk about for just a few minutes, the interesting thing about James's use of that statement that's very similar to what David says, I have no good thing apart from you, Lord, is that James uses that as a solution to temptation. Verse 15 in James 1, the very first the verse right before he says, every good and perfect gift comes from Lord, he says, don't be deceived. Every good and perfect gift comes from one place. Let's talk about that. What was the original lie? The original lie was God is ripping you off. These little restrictive boundaries that God's put around it, and there was only one. I mean, they lived in paradise. There was only one rule. Satan only has three lures in his tackle box. Or to use a football metaphor, he only has three plays in his playbook. He doesn't need any more because they all work. They work on humans. So the very first lie was, you are getting ripped off by doing it God's way. And James says, don't be deceived. There's no good that you're going to find in your life that's outside of those parameters that God has drawn. When God says don't do something, like he told them not to eat of that, one rule, don't eat of that tree. It was good to look at. It was good to eat. It, 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 you know, it did the thing that all those yummy desserts do out in the lobby for those of us that can't eat them. It's come to me, you know. <laughs> and God just said, don't do that. Every time God says, don't do that, don't go there, he's saying, don't hurt yourself. Every time. There's, nothing, there's no good thing apart from him. And James just saw that as the solution to temptation. I hate to tell you, I was pretty old before I recognized that that was my downfall. All of the worst mistakes I ever made is I believed the lie that if I just went outside the parameters that God had drawn, I could have that good thing or that good person. And of course, God isn't going to be mocked. We will learn one way or another. We'll learn it by watching other people crash and burn or we'll learn it by crashing and burning ourselves. So... Apart from you, I have no good thing or I have no goodness. Both of those are true. And if you just tie that in with James saying that, you know, every good and perfect gift comes from the Lord, it's a, it's, it's a really good thing, folks, to hang on to when you're making decisions about anything, but especially things that are going to affect your heart. Is it God doing it? Is God giving that person to you? 
Or are you just squinting your eyes at it and hoping that it's God? I prayed. I, we don't want to go into all of the mistakes I've made in my life. But believe me, you'd feel so much better about yourself <laughs> if, <laughs> if you could just hear the stupid things I've done. But many times I have prayed something to this in this nature. Lord, please let this be your will. So I've already started down the wrong fork in the road when I'm thinking that way, haven't I? God, give me this. In Jesus' name, amen. That's kind of like saying, Lord, take up your cross and follow me. And God, bless this. And here's my plans. And oh, God, this is the American way. That's why we're in the trouble that we're in. So apart from you, I have no good thing. Now, David was not a straight-A student. And the worst mistakes that David ever made in his life was when he forgot this one thing. Don't feel like going out to battle. Been in a lot of battles, so you just decide to stay home and let all the other guys fight. Go up on your roof in the evening, and oh, there's your beautiful neighbor bathing on the rooftop next to you. Every time I read that story, I want to go, David, David. Remember, apart from the Lord, you have no good thing. That's out of bounds, David. Don't go there. It's not a good thing, no matter what you think. We're going to look later in my time here in one of the later Psalms that I think it's 84, where it says that no good thing will he withhold from those whose walk uprightly before him. So we got a wonderful promise, but I don't want to steal my thunder. The saints who are on the earth, verse 3, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Isn't that true? Isn't it cool that this is the king talking? Don't you wish you had a king like that? That says, man, you know who I want to hang out with? All those godly people. All the people that are crazy in love with Jesus. Now, please don't confuse that with church people. I just moved back to my island from pastoring in, in oh, I almost said the name of the state. This is going to go out there, so I'm going to be very careful what I say. Let's just say another state. Meanest church people I've ever met in my whole life. Just mean, nasty people. But you know what? Going to a church every week doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's every week makes you a cheeseburger. Church people are not synonymous with saints, with godly people. But you know, you know when you talk, you don't have to talk with somebody for very long, but you see that Jesus light in your eyes. That happened to me before the service. And you, you just feel drawn to people like that, don't you? The other kind, I'm not going to go there. I won't tell you what this state is, but... Please don't move there. <laughs> 20 years I was there. I reached more people here in this church last January than I did in 20 combined years of ministry. And nobody was yelling at me or trying to punch me out or let the air out of my tires. And So I love you guys. I want to hang out with you guys. <laughs> David, too. So I wrote in my Bible after verse 3, I wrote, me too, Dave. Yeah, I'm with you. When I first moved out to this unnamed state, I lived on an island. I'm an island kind of guy. I lived on an island, and then I just assumed there, I saw churches everywhere. I didn't realize that they were all empty, or they were antique stores, or restaurants, or whatever. There were very, very few Christians in that state. And the nearest group of like-minded believers I could find was a three-hour drive away. So every Sunday, I drove three hours. And fortunately, this church had potlucks every Sunday, so I got to hang out and eat with them and then drive three hours back home. You know what? I sang all the way there, and I sang all the way back because I, I just wanted to be around those people that had that Jesus love in their hearts. So I understand what David was saying. And then he says, by contrast, those that hasten after other gods, their sorrows are going to be multiplied. And I just don't want to go there. No, good, no I don't want those gods. I'm not going to do their thing. 
Verses 5 and 6 are a common device in Hebrew poetry where you say the same thing three or four different ways in a row. The, the most famous one of these little grouplets is in Isaiah where it says, he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquity, the chastisement of our peace was on him by his stripes were healed. That's saying the same thing four different ways. It's a common Hebrew poetic device. And so that's what verses 4 and 5, Lord, you are my portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. So the big yellow flashing neon arrow is pointing to you, Lord. You're it. And when it talks about portion, I looked this word up and some of the synonyms of this Hebrew word that's translated assigned portion are allotment, provision. Both of these verses go back to the time when Israel first came into the promised land and God just divided up the whole country to all of them. Those of you that went to Israel, didn't the tribe of Dan really luck out? <laughs> they, they got the most beautiful, up there in Galilee, they got the most beautiful part of the whole country. I felt sorry for the people that got the Judean wilderness. But you know what? Some people like deserts. Go figure. Some people live in Palm Springs. Can you believe that? Sorry. If you have a, if you have a winter house in Palm Springs, please forgive me. Please come back next week. Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance. You are my cup. Had General Ryan the word cup in Hebrew in the Old Testament, especially in the poetic books, this is used of a metaphor of blessing, the cup of blessing. So, Lord, basically, if you add all of these statements up, he's saying, Lord, you are all that I need. It's all wrapped up in you. We really mess up when we look at God as a vending machine that we go to to get our blessing. You know, the silliest thing is when we ask God to give us stuff that we think is going to fill our hearts. And there's only one thing that will fill our hearts, and that's him. Andrew Murray said, one of my, he's one of my favorite authors, Andrew Murray said, God never gives life apart from himself. He can't. There is no life apart from him. There's no peace apart from him. So God doesn't give peace apart from himself. When he gives you life, when he gives you blessing, when he gives you peace, he's given you himself. And David figured it out. He says, Lord, you're all I need. So he stopped praying the prayers. Oh, God, give me this. God, give me this. God, give me this. Then I know I'll be happiest. God, give me yourself. Somebody said it. I wish I could properly quote who said this, but I had it on my wall for years, my quote wall. And it said, God will always give the very best to those who let him do the choosing. First of all, he's the only one who knows what the very best is. And that's just his nature. But he gives blessing and life and peace. He gives when he gives us himself. So David said, Lord, you're my inheritance. You're my cup of a blessing. When, when I got my allotment as one of your people, it's you, and that's all I really need. You want to know what the secret of contentment is? It's to recognize that. I've been rich, and I've been poor. I've been filthy, stinking rich and lost it all. And I've lived in a car. I've been homeless. I've been both places. I have discovered one thing that doesn't change the peace in my heart, and that's when he's my treasure, when he's my portion, and he's my cup. David figured that out, and David was in all those places as well. That's how you know. Max Lucado said this, you never know for sure that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you've got. That's worth knowing. Isn't that worth knowing, sister? It's worth being emptied of everything else just to find out that that's true. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. That's just such a beautiful poetic language. Um, I could tell you a story. Back when I had a bunch of money, um, I bought a saltwater farm in the state that I will not mention, <laughs> in the northeast. 
seven acres of oceanfront property. Properties are really cheap out there. It cost you millions of dollars out here. It was a couple hundred thousand dollars out there. And I bought it because I loved, I loved restoring old houses, and it was a wonderful 200-year-old house, and you could see the ocean. That's all I cared about. You could also see a pond. You, if, you, know, you could see orchards. You, there was about 2,000 feet of stone wall. I love stone walls. So about two weeks into the deal, as the deal was, you know, the banks were doing all the things that, that they were doing, I walked the property lines. And when I walked the property lines, I, I was wiping tears out of my eyes. I just couldn't believe that all this was going to be mine. That it was, I mean, it took me five hours after I bought the house. It took me five hours to mow the lawn on my lawn tractor. And I was singing and praising God the whole time. It was like, it was like driving through the most beautiful oceanfront golf course you've ever seen. I lost that house, by the way. Lost hundreds of thousands of dollars. The thing that made that life, even after I lost it all, was him. But you don't, often don't know that until you lose it all. Then when you lose it all, you realize, you know what? I still have the one thing that gives me peace in my heart. The reason I was saying all of that is the, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. I love that phrase because I remember walking the property lines and saying, man, wow, look at that. Five different kinds of apple trees. Look at that. Six different kinds of berries. Turtles in the pond. 400 feet of oceanfront. A little cove to anchor my boat in. Do I, am I whining? I, I, I don't think I... <laughs> I remember that feeling in my heart that, Lord, I cannot believe that you do this for me. And like Job... It was all there one day, and it was all gone in another day. And the only thing that didn't change was my life, because my life was in him. That's worth knowing, folks. It's worth knowing. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. Underline the word heart. This isn't very poetic, but in fact, it's funny. But the Hebrew word literally is kidneys. <laughs> my kidneys instruct me in the night seasons. My kidneys never instruct me. <laughs> Other organs instruct me, like get up and go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. But um, can I say bathroom in church? It's interesting. I'm a word guy, and I love colorful words. But it's interesting that the translation of this word, which is the Hebrew word for kidneys, also means reins, like the reins on a horse or the reins on a buckboard, that which you steer the horse with, or the horses with, and your stagecoach. And the old King James says, "My reins, R-E-I-N-S, my reins instruct me." in the middle of the night. When you have this thing going with the Lord where you are purposely, like we sang, you are asking him to whisper in your ear. You're saying, you're stating, I've decided to follow you. I know that you're going to complete what you started in me, so I am glued to you. Draw me close. I'm running into your arms. All those things. When that's the posture of my heart, that doesn't stop when you go to sleep. Remember when Angel went to Africa for a year. And I committed myself to praying for her. And I had to calc out, okay, what's, what's, what's the time zone? You know, what's, what's she doing now? And, uh, and during that year, a whole bunch of times, I'm embarrassing her, I'm sorry. I'll look over here. Uh, a whole bunch of times, God woke me up in the middle of the night. And the first thing that I thought of was Angel. Because it's not the middle of the night where she is. And so my first knee-jerk reaction was to pray for you in the middle of the night. Uh, I have friends in probably 30 different countries around the world. And so my antenna are on. And whenever I wake up in the middle of the night, the first thing I think of is, okay, is there somebody I'm supposed to pray for? 
And if God doesn't bring, of course, there's some fabulous stories and videos we'll get to see in heaven of how critical it was that you obey those nudgings and those promptings because sometimes it's life or death. I've been on the receiving end of some of those kind of prayers in my life. Where was I going with that? Oh, if the Lord doesn't point somebody out specifically for me to pray for, then I realize, okay, I'm just going to sit here and listen for a while. Perfect opportunity. You know, there's, there's no distractions. So, Lord, if you have something you want to say to me, I challenge you to do this, folks. Maybe some of you are smiling, so maybe you've already discovered this. When you say, Lord, I, I have no distractions in this minute, either willfully or uh, willingly or unwillingly, I'm, I'm sitting here in a place of no distraction. Please speak to my heart what you want to say to me. Have you noticed that he does? It's usually because of the church that I grew up in where God was always yelling at us. Well, it was the pastor yelling at us, but you know, we just thought God was just like him. I always assumed that if I was ever alone with the Lord, he was going to yell at me. I just assumed I was pretty much a handful, and he was ticked off at me most of the time. Uh, I am so glad that he has shown me otherwise. One of the women in my first church, uh, or the church out in this unnamed state that I pastored for 20 years, one of the best things she ever said to me, she said, you know, when I first came here, I had no idea what the real Jesus was like. And she said, if you told me that Jesus was in that room, I would be afraid to go in. But she said, now, now that I know the real Jesus, if you told me Jesus was in that room, I'd shove you out of the way and I'd bust the door down so I could get in there and be with him. And I could have kissed her. I just thought, then, then that's what God wanted you to know. So open your heart like David did. Um, by the way, the Lord has given me counsel. The Lord instructs me in night seasons. God does not do that without permission. Very good friend of mine, guy I dearly love. We were sitting in a, we went to a health clinic for diabetes reversal, which I heartily, re- I heartily recommend because it worked, and I'm not diabetic anymore. But he and I were sitting in the sauna after this workout massage. It was a real, real tough life there. Uh, and we were sitting in the sauna, and he was, we were talking about just God speaking to us. And he said, you know, the thing I've always wanted is I've always wished that I knew God's voice better. And I looked him right in the eyes, and I said, I have to tell you, brother, he will not interrupt your life. You have to make space for him. And he started crying. And of course, then I felt bad. I thought that I'd offended him. But the more that I got to know this guy, I realized he never had stillness in his life. He had not just one smartphone. He had several smartphones. He had so much input going on. God would have had to knock a building over just to get through. That's why we sang the song, Whisper in My Ear. Years ago, when my daddy was alive, and if you... If you got to know my dad, who lived here in Santa Rosa for 40-some-odd years, you know what a great guy he was. Just my favorite man I've ever known. But my daddy, I remember we at one uh, Thanksgiving, we were all gathered at his house in Santa Rosa, and all my 18 nieces and nephews and all my siblings, and all the women were in the kitchen doing the cooking stuff, and the guys were all watching football, and my grandma was watching football. She was a real uh, 49ers fan. She carried playbooks with her, my grandma. And, you know, Clark would make a fantastic run, and she'd say, you know, last year, 76.5% of his passes, and I would look at her, Grandma, what planet did you come from? I'm sorry, I'm digressing. So dinner was ready, and, and of course, the, the TV's blaring with the football game on, and everybody's chatting and talking. And my dad walked into the room, stood right in front of the TV, and he whispered something. And, of course, nobody could hear him. And after a while, people go, shh, 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 dad has something to say. And so it was, 
still and quiet, he said, dinner is served. And I thought, there's a wise man. A lot of people think that they'll hear God's voice if God would just scream over the top of all of the other clutter. Didn't work that way, folks. You have to have time for stillness. Guess what? If we don't know that, our enemy knows that. A little challenge to you. Purpose in your heart that you're going to spend more time listening to the Lord and watch what happens. Your cat will catch on fire. You know that... <laughs> People will try to, I mean, it's bizarre, the distractions. I think that's the devil's number one deal, is distraction. That's my personal thing. So, for God to instruct you and counsel you in the night season, he doesn't do that without permission. And sometimes, it's, it's not like you've got to work for it, but we're, we just have way too much input coming into these brains than what we were built for. Don't we? I know I do. And I live on an island. I have set the Lord always before me, verse 8, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. And anytime you see this phrase, at my right hand, there's lots of teaching about to a king at the right hand was the place of honor or the place where you put your, your champion. But simply the Hebrew phrase at my right hand means close to me. Like the remote for your TV or your water bottle if you're always hydrating. So when it says David saying, I have set the Lord always before me and because he is at my right hand, because he's close to me, I'm safe. I'm not going to be moved. I want to look at this phrase, I've set the Lord always before me. It's a spatial word, not special, spatial in Hebrew. It's a word of geography, so to speak. When it means I've set God before me, guess where that makes, puts me? It puts me following. If I've put him before me. Now, I was reading, one of my very favorite commentators said that putting the Lord always before me was in terms of priority. Putting Jesus first. Well, that's a, a wonderful sermon. That's just not what the Hebrew word means. The Hebrew word means I have, I have stopped leading and I have started following. I've put you in front of me. Let me give a fabulous Oswald Chambers quote. I promise you it will make you squirm. It makes me squirm. A lot of Oswald Chambers quotes make me squirm. He said this, we cannot call ourselves followers of Jesus if we are taking the initiative because followers follow. Isn't that a duh? Isn't that a no-brainer? But, but this not American. If we went down to the Christian bookstore, no, no offense on this Christian bookstore, but you find a ton of books telling you just the opposite of that. Where basically you're leading, and, and here's all the, the fabulous prayers and little tricks that you to get God on your program, but that's just not what being a follower of Jesus is. And David, the, t the times David messed up really bad were when he forgot who he was following. And he went out on his own. Been there? done that, got the t-shirt, don't want to go there again. I have set the Lord. That's a deliberate act of will, and it's a verb tense which speaks of continuous action. So I have always set the Lord before me so that I'm following. If you want to say I've set him before me as first in priority, first in my life, that's not a bad thought. It's a good thought. It's just not what David is saying here. And of course, this one, this once again is wonderful that this is the king talking. It makes me, I want a king like that. I want a king that says, you know, my life is in him. All I need is in him. And he's the one that's leading and I'm following. And uh, boy, that's, that's what I want for me. Verses 9 and 10 um, are prophetic. Whether David knew he was prophesying or not is... A lot of the guys that God used to prophesy, especially in the Psalms, didn't even realize they were prophesying. They were just filled with the Holy Spirit. Has this ever happened to you? 
You've asked God, give me the words, God, give me the words. And then later on, you're thinking back and you're realizing, who was it that said that? Well, that was you, girl. Well, that was you, guy. And you go, no, it wasn't. That didn't come, that didn't, didn't come out of my brain. Well, that's, this is prophetic. And in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 13, respectively, Peter and Paul both use verse 10 as a prophetic statement about Messiah not seeing decay, being raised from the dead before his body could decay. In fact, Peter, when he points it out, says, you know, it couldn't have been David talking about himself because David's been decayed for hundreds of years. But he was speaking about Messiah. So verses 9 and 10, my heart is glad, my glory rejoices, my flesh will rest in hope. Because you will not leave my soul in Sheol, which is the Hebrew term for the place of the dead, nor will you allow your Holy One. In my New King James and in my Amplified Bible, the words Holy One are capitalized, speaking, recognizing that it was speaking of Messiah. I've got a few more minutes. Can I go over? Because I, would, I don't want to water down uh, verse 11. You will show me. It is a causative verb, and I'll give you the verb if you want to check it out. The verb is yaha, Y-A-D-H-A, which is the Hebrew word for intimate personal knowledge. And it is a causative verb, and it is a continuous action or an imperfect verb, which means the action is not completed. It's a process verb. So here's what he's saying. You personally will cause me intimately to know intimately the path of life as we go day by day. <laughs> so this is not a scroll descending from heaven with a five-year plan for you to follow. Have you ever found yourself saying, oh, God, if you would just tell me what the plan is, I will not bug you anymore. But see, he likes it when I don't know what's next. He likes it when I turn to him. He craves closeness with us more than we crave it with him. So if he hasn't shown you the whole plan, that's not because he's playing hard to get. He just wants you to walk with him step by step. And David figured this out. See, what this means to a hyperanalytical person like me, I've made lots of mistakes being hyperanalytical and analyzing everything to where pretty soon it's just I construct my own reality and you, 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 you and never mind, you don't, you don't want to go there. Psalm 32, which is one of the psalms that Ross will be teaching, God says flat out, I, the Lord, will instruct you and I will teach you in the way that you should go and I will counsel you with my eye on you. <laughs> I love that. So David says, I'm confident you're going to do this. You're going to show me the path of life. You know what that means? That means all I really need is saying kind of the same thing that David says back up in, uh, in verse 2. I don't have any good thing apart from you. He's saying, look, Lord, all I really need, I don't need to know the whole plan. All I need to know is I need to be close to you. And when I get to the place that i got to turn, you'll show me. When I get to the place where the next plot development changes, you'll show me. But it's all about that closeness to him. And what that means is I don't have to even be able to connect the dots properly, which is what my analytical brain wants to do. Just, just, just show me a sketch. I'll fill it in. God says, no, we can't trust you, son. Can't trust you to do that. You, you know everything you need to know when you, when you realize, I'll show you the path. You don't even have to see the dots, much less connect them. All you have to do is walk with me today. Do that tomorrow. This is not the way most of us are used to living. In fact, it's why we make so many of the mistakes we do. And later on in our life, when we're scared to do anything but follow him. That's when we finally realize that's the way it was designed to work. Let me just tell you one Elizabeth Elliot quote. I love it. In her book, God's Guidance 
Best book on God's guidance I have ever read, hands down. It's so thorough. It's called God's Guidance, A Slow and Certain Light. Listen to what she says. She was relating her experience of when she went to South America to try to reach the same tribe of Indians that killed her husband, who went down there as a missionary. This is what this godly woman said. She said, I would ten times rather have a guide who goes with me than the most expert advice and the most complete set of directions. Often in our prayers, folks, and this is the danger of going to people instead of going to the Lord. You want advice from somebody you trust. That's not a bad thing. It's just second rate. You have a guide who will go with you. Psalm 1611 says that. David figured that out. Any pleasures I'm going to have, any fullness of joy, complete satisfaction of joy, that's going to be wherever you are. So all I need is you. I need to walk with you. You'll show me what I need to know. And then you have to just brace yourself to get all kinds of contrary advice from well-meaning people. You mean you're just waiting on God? Yep. You can't just sit there. Well, I'm only sitting here because he told me to sit here. And if he tells me to do something, I'm going to do something then. Waiting on God doesn't mean you don't do anything. It just means you don't do anything unless he tells you to do something. And that's not the American way, is it? I would ten times rather have a guide who goes with me than the best advice. Isn't that wisdom? So the good news is, like David, you have a guide who wants to go with you. In Psalm 32, verse 8, he says, I will. I'll show you the way to go. You do have to stick close to me. I won't counsel you without your permission. I can't get through if there's too much other input. I mean, there are a few things we need to do to make ourselves receptive. Isn't that good stuff? Next week, we will look at uh, the secret of courage. A lot of people think David was fearless just because he fought a giant and a lion and a bear. And, you know, he's he's just, you think this is a guy that's fearless. But David, all through the psalm, says, no, I'm scared to death. There's a difference between being fearless and having courage. Courage means even when you're afraid, you do it anyway. So courage doesn't even kick in until you're afraid, which is good news for us Freddy cats, right, Ann? Good for us Freddy cats to know that we can be courageous people. So that's a little hors d'oeuvre for next week. Let's pray. That big flashing yellow arrow, Lord, that points to you in this whole psalm. We have the story. We get to watch how when David did it right. We get to watch when he did it wrong. We have our own lives to look at. I pray this would be a watershed moment for us, Lord. I pray that first of all, I would put you always before me, that I would be follower, that I would not be stepping out of my own initiative without your say-so. And you have promised that you'd show us the path that leads to life, the path that consists in life, the way to have the real life that you promised to your people. It's in you. It's wrapped up in you. You'll show us daily, intimately. And we need to realize, Father, that Apart from you, there isn't any good thing. And that every good and perfect gift we have came from you. So help us to pay attention to those boundaries, Lord, and not fall for the lies. Thank you for mercy and grace. I would not be here if you didn't forgive my transgression. But I want to learn. I don't want to fall for those lies anymore. Every good and perfect gift comes from one place. And we have no good thing or no goodness apart from you. So cement this in our minds. When we go back over this passage and read it later, Lord, Speak to our hearts, we pray. Amen. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org.